Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this I Believe podcast. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Hi, you guys. Welcome back to the I Believe podcast. I'm here with Allie, and she's actually from Long Island, New York, and she was recently diagnosed in June of this year, so June 2022. Um, Allie, I'm going to go ahead and just toss it over to you so you can introduce yourself. Tell us a little about you. Sure. Um, So my name is Allie. I am a psychologist. My spare time, I am a huge board game fan, so love Settlers of Catan for those out there who know that game. Also love to watch documentaries. I'm a big baker. And yeah, so I was diagnosed just about four months ago. Obviously, like things had to have kind of came to a head for you to get diagnosed. So talk to us a little about what led to your initial diagnosis. So I have had chronic health issues for the past decade, and I'm pretty diligent about going to the doctor whenever I have a new symptom. Um, But for whatever strange reason, um, in April and May of this year, I was getting very intermittent shooting pain in my left eye. Um, And for some reason, I was not on top of it. I sort of assumed it was nothing because it was very sporadic. Um, And then I mentioned it in passing to my therapist and she was like, well, that's your eye. Like you should really get that checked out. And I was like, you know what? She's absolutely right. So I went to my local eye doctor. They said, has anyone ever told you have a nevus, a freckle on your eye? I said, no. They said, well, you do. It's just like a freckle you would have on your body. No big deal. Um, I see the eye doctor. She tells me everything seems normal except some fluid buildup behind my retina. So send me to a retina specialist. I'm in there in about three days. Um, the doctor comes in, does a lot of testing, looks at the scans, starts saying to me, this looks really interesting, but isn't really telling me anything else. So I start to worry and he brings in his colleague and they're looking at the scans. Um, the colleague mentions that there's a nevus on my eye. Sometimes it can be cancerous, but doesn't look like cancer at all. So that's great. I'm like, okay. Um, and they tell me I probably have something called choroidal neovascularization and that, Um, We treat that with shots. Um, The colleague wanted to start the shots that day, but my doctor said, you know what, like, let's get a second opinion. So they tell me they're sending me to this doctor in the city who's a top eye doctor. Um, So I say, okay. Um, And the next day I call the doctor's office back. I'm like, hey, I just want to clarify, like, what am I getting the second opinion on, whether it's choroidal neovascularization? Um, And the nurse, like, opens up my chart. She goes, oh, it looks like they want to make sure it's not cancer. Just, like, rule it out. And I was like, oh, that's weird because it sounded like it wasn't, but okay. Um, So for the next week, I'm walking around telling people, like, yeah, I'm just going to make sure it's not cancer. Like, obviously it's not cancer. Like, what are the chances of that? Apparently six in a million. And so, yeah, I got a doctor's appointment within about a week. Um, I go in. And I hear the words melanoma, and obviously I was just in complete and absolute shock. Obviously, it's 
last thing you ever expect to hear. Um, and, and the interesting part about all this is I was told that this cancer usually doesn't cause eye pain. So we don't really know what caused the eye pain. Could it have been the tumor? Could it have been the fact that the tumor caused the detached retina? Could it have been my dry eye that I've had for many years? I have no idea, but thank God I had that pain. And thank God my therapist encouraged me to go to the eye doctor. No, for sure. And, and you're right. That is a really rare thing, like to experience any level of pain. Mm -hmm. um, most people don't have pain until after their diagnosis and after their treatment of some kind. So I, I sometimes wonder, though, like if the body just sometimes, if we're more sensitive to things, like, like you mentioned, you've dealt with chronic health issues your whole life. You're probably pretty sensitive to what your body feels like. Absolutely. Um, and I think that there's, there's room for debate the theory maybe that you know that some of us feel things a little differently than others but you know like you said a good thing that you were able to get in so when you ended up like getting this official diagnosis do you remember or do you know like how big your tumor was at the time um, and what options were offered for treatment for you yes so it was less than two millimeters in thickness and then the I forget if it's the height or the length was about I think like six millimeters and so Right then and there, the doctor said, like, these are your treatment options. Your tumor's on the smaller end, which is good. These are the different options. If you were my daughter, I would recommend TTT laser. And he was like, we can do it today. And I was like, great. Um, and I didn't really know the questions to ask at the time. So I got the laser treatments on that day, the first round, right? And it usually, I think, happens in about three rounds every few months. And, you know, a few people in my life after that were like, are you going to get a second opinion? And I was like, no, like this is a top eye doctor. Why would I do that? And then I wrote in one of the ocular melanoma Facebook groups. I forgot which one, my story, and that I got the TTT done. And someone said, you should really look into plaque brachytherapy because there's actually some research out there that TTT might not always be so effective at like really getting all the remnants of the tumor. And that's why I was like, that's when I was like, huh, like, let me do some more research. Um, so I did some more research um, and ended up scheduling an appointment with Dr. Paul Finger in New York City. Basically went in and was like, I'm 99% sure I should go with the brachytherapy. And he was like, you should. And so then I ended up getting that done about a month later. Well, and I think it's, it's, um, it, it's interesting. And it, well, it's, it's just something to note that like the Facebook groups can be helpful. Um, they can definitely be helpful, but they're not always the best source of information. So I think it's good that you went and you did your own research. Um, you did your own research and you came to a conclusion of like, okay, this does feel like a better option for me. Because um, I think sometimes sometimes people in the Facebook groups, you could, if you see someone like go a different route or decide to do something different than maybe what was originally recommended, sometimes from like an audience perspective or from like an outside perspective, sometimes it can feel like, okay, but like, were they just going off the Facebook group or were they actually like making an informed decision? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's just so important that we recognize like you made an informed decision. You didn't just go off of a, off of a Facebook group post, like you'd made an informed decision by talking to another doctor. Absolutely. All of these doctors obviously have different opinions and, and you made the decision that felt the best to you. Um, and I think that that at the end of the day, that's what matters the most. One doctor might really be a huge advocate for laser, which I know we have Dr. Murray. He spoke on the podcast and he's a huge advocate for laser when it's done well. And not every doctor out there knows how to do it well. So there is a risk for error there still because it's a newer treatment. Um, and so just to to make that decision for yourself and be able to say like, okay, 
maybe this would work, maybe it wouldn't, but I feel more comfortable with the, the option that is kind of more grounded in research. There's more research on it to say this is working better and longer for people. Um, so I just wanted to like make a note of that. I think that's such a good point um, to make. So, okay, obviously like you have this treatment done, you have the brachytherapy. Um, since your tumor was small, was your, was your plaque like on for three days, five days, seven days? Um, How long did you end up having? On for seven days. Okay. Um, it's always interesting to hear. Sometimes I have people, I have had people that they'll interview and they're like, oh yeah, my plaque was only on for five days because it was so small. And I'm like, okay, like I was there for seven, but my tumor was huge. Like, <laughs> so, so it's kind of crazy. Um, but, um, what was your experience like? Did you feel like the plaque leak was, I mean, was it bearable? Was it really, really painful? It was so much more bearable than I imagined. Um, was I uncomfortable? Absolutely. Was I in pain? Yes. Um, but, but it was funny one morning I woke up and I, and I, I get colon spasms, which are these very severe spasms in your colon. Um, and people online have actually said, people have been through childbirth have said that like colon spasms were more painful than going into labor and labor pains. So these pains are awful. And so I woke up one morning with these pains and I said to my mom, I was like, wow, I was like, you know, I've been through so much health wise that relative to everything else I've been through in these colon spasms that I was having in that moment, I was like, this is a breeze. This is a walk in the park. Um, and that's not to downplay and minimize it. Um, but in some ways, I think had I not had chronic health issues in the past, I probably, it probably would have been a lot less bearable. No, I think that's an interesting point. Like, I think we tend to compare our experience. Like we make sense of our experience based on, on like what we can compare it to. So when I went through brachytherapy, I had just had natural childbirth like less than a year previous to that. So like everything in my brain compared to childbirth <laughs> and, and, but plaque week was still horrendous for me, mm-hmm. but my plaque was also huge. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot, I used that a lot. Like I, I would be like, okay, like, does this compare to, to childbirth? No. Okay. I can do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just like, I mean, like blood work or shots or like some of those kinds of things. They're not very comfortable, but I'm like, okay, but like in the grand scheme of things, childbirth was way harder. Plaque week, way harder. Um, so I think it's funny though, that, that we do that, like that our brains kind of thrive in that kind of a space. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. after plaque week, um, you mentioned earlier before we started talking, like you had the option or kind of were, were wanting a biopsy done. Um, what ended up being the reasoning behind how your biopsy went? So I would actually say that determining whether I was going to get the biopsy or not was probably one of the most stressful aspects of this entire journey for me. Um, So when I first got the diagnosis, the option of getting a biopsy was never mentioned. Um, I attended one of like the Zoom support meetings and someone there actually mentioned like, did the doctor mention a biopsy? I said, no. Um, called the doctor out. This was the first doctor I saw and he said, your tumor's too small to do that. I said, okay, well, he's the doctor. Okay. Um, but then I kept reading up on how important that is and how, you know, to get into certain trials, you need to know um, what your risk is, right? If you're class one, class two. Um, and so then when I saw the second doctor, I brought it up to him. Um, and he also said it's tumors too small in thickness to do that. It's not worth the risk. Um, and then, I, I mean, I, I can't even tell you the amount of hours of research I did on the biopsy reading people's um, experiences in the Facebook group, have other people with this size tumor gone in the biopsy. Um, I really wanted it. As time went on, I was like, this is something I need to do. Um, And I had read, you know, or watched videos of of doctors, ocular oncologists saying, 
that there have been studies that show that people who never got the biopsy done wish they did. And those who got it done, who even maybe are in the higher um, risk category for metastasis, don't regret it. Um, and I was like, I really want this. So um, before my brachytherapy, I went back to my doctor and he still said no. And I sort of accepted that. I was like, okay, you know what? Like he says there's a higher risk of um, vision damage. Um, I know I had read online that's, you know, there are theories that seeding can happen, right? Where like the tumor cells might spread throughout the eye. Although to my understanding, that doesn't necessarily um, ring true. I don't know. Um, and, you know, my, my ocular oncologist also mentioned an interesting point that sometimes you can do a biopsy and the part of the eye that you're taking the biopsy from might come back low risk for metastasis, but if they've taken the biopsy from a different part of the eye, maybe it would have been high risk. So at that point I said, okay, I guess I'm not doing it. Um, it took me a while to really accept that there was going to be this uncertainty. So I got the surgery done. And then I come across something in one of the Facebook groups that mentions that Dr. Afshar, I think he's at UCLA, I think, um, is an ocular oncologist who will actually perform the biopsy post-brachytherapy, which is sort of unheard of from what I understand. That doesn't really happen. Um, and there's this um, company called Castle Biopsy in Canada, where you can send it to, I think, up to 90 days post-brachytherapy. It's you know, you're more likely not to get a viable sample, but but you might be able to do it. So I was considering traveling all the way there. Um, long story short, I then started seeing my me a medical oncologist, Dr. Carvajal in New York. He's great. Um, and I talked this through with him. And he was like, look, like, I don't know of any patients who got this done post-biopsy. And he said, I don't know how valid those, I mean, post-brachytherapy. And he said, I don't know how valid those results are going to be. Like, does the brachytherapy somehow impact the DNA. Um, and so we went back and forth and he basically said like, look, like it would be super interesting to get. And like for those purposes, he was like, yeah, I'd say do it. He's like, but to travel all the way to California to find someone who'd be willing to do this. Um, he's like, I don't know if it's worth it. Um, and everyone I talked to, so many doctors were just like recommended against it. I really wanted it. Um, and at that point I was going to be starting a new job soon. It would be a whole to-do to go to California, obviously another huge medical expense. Um, and so at the end of the day, I was like, you know what, like my oncologist makes a good point. Like who knows if it changes like the, the, the tumor DNA, like how do we know? Well, that's the biggest, that's the biggest argument for not doing a biopsy post, post prachytherapy is that the radiation does affect the, the makeup of the tumor and you're not going to get an accurate read. Um, that's, that's part of the reason Castle is so just so specific on, um, you know, you do need to have the biopsy done prior to treatment or at the time of treatment so that it's not a, uh, basically like a, a ruined sample. Mm -hmm. um, they don't want a sample of radioactive tissue. They want, um, they want the prior tissue because that's what they, that's what their test is designed to test. Um, but I mean, honestly, I think, like you said, like it's, it's been this huge back and forth of like, you obviously really, really wanted the biopsy. And so you've had multiple different kind of avenues. And I, I think maybe you can relate to this, but just the idea that like, when you focus on something, you, your awareness of that possibility of that something becomes bigger, right? So like when you're focused on how much you want the biopsy, when you're focused on how much you want to want this to happen, even though it didn't end up happening the way that maybe it could have if you had gone to a different doctor or it just didn't go the way because the doctors all agreed, like it's just not possible. Regardless, at the end of the day, like if you're sitting in this space, right, this mental space of I have to have this done, I really want this done, 
then like you're going to continue being aware of any of the slight possibilities of that happening. And so I can kind of imagine this kind of like this wave of like, okay, maybe I can get it done. Oh, never mind. Maybe I can get it done. Maybe not. And like that wave. So how did you um, just emotionally, mentally like ride that wave of like, okay, maybe I'm going to get some answers and some certainty to like, nope, never mind. You're back to uncertainty again. Yeah, it was a lot. I mean, I spoke to a lot of loved ones in my life, family, friends, you know, what do you think you do in this situation? And of course, you know, nine times out of 10, they're like, I don't know, or I don't even understand what this biopsy is or what you're talking about. Um, so I think just like support from the people around me. And I think the biggest thing that was helpful, not only with that situation, but cancer in general, chronic health issues, life, painful life experiences, is this idea of radical acceptance, which is this therapeutic term. It, it stems from dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, and it, I, I love it. It basically, in a nutshell, talks about how pain plus denial equals suffering, whereas pain plus acceptance equals pain, right? So if we can accept whatever's happening and accept that we might not be able to do those things that we want to do, it's still painful. But when we sort of deny what's going on and we have those thoughts of it's not there and I wish it wasn't this way, that's when it really leads to suffering. And so I think I really leaned into that and just allowed myself to feel however I was feeling, whether it was anger, confusion, feeling overwhelmed, frustrated, just allowing myself to sit in that and reminding myself that those emotions are temporary and validating how hard it was for myself. No, I think that's such a powerful tool, like just to, to be able to validate yourself. And that's, that's a skill that I don't think all of us kind of like, we don't, we don't have that automatically programmed into us. Um, I think that's something that most of us have to learn over time. And obviously like as a psychologist, like you have a little bit more of a background in kind of the nuances of how that works in the brain and why. Um, but I think it's, it's still like in practice with yourself. Like I, I, I noticed you mentioned like that you had a therapist and I'm like, it's it, to me, it's so validating because I'm not a therapist, but I see a therapist and I'm like, it's so validating to hear that therapists also need therapists. Like <laughs> absolutely <laughs> both ways. Absolutely. Um, and that like, you know, just that, that emphasis on, on approaching your mental health, um, with that idea and, and your physical health with that idea of like radical acceptance. Um, no, I love that. So, okay. Um, let's talk a little bit more. I mean, you're super new to this. Um, and, and I know the first year it can be kind of this, I don't know if you're feeling this, but I felt like for, for me, for a lot of other people, it seems like this constant period of like, okay, like you had your treatment. So now you're better. Right. And like, how, how are you approaching, um, what you called like a, the, the idea that, you know, our cancer doesn't really have this binary view. Like it, it's not really like a, okay, you have cancer and now you don't, you're in remission. Like we don't have that with this. Um, so maybe talk a little bit more about like kind of your perspective on that and how you have coped with that in your own diagnosis. Yeah. So it, it's super interesting. And I guess I'll start by saying that when I first got this diagnosis from that first doctor, he didn't talk about the risk of metastasis at all. Um, my parents and I left that appointment not really feeling much of anything. I think we were in shock. And at the same time, we didn't understand this risk of metastasis. It wasn't mentioned to us. So we thought, oh, we're lasering this tumor. We're good to go. Everything's fine. And it wasn't until a few days later when I start doing my research that I'm like, oh, wait, this is a lot more complicated. Um, and so, you know... After I got the surgery, I remember my mom feeling really relieved and she like asked me how I felt and I didn't really feel that happy or relieved and she didn't understand, which, which is okay. 
Um, and I didn't really understand myself either until some time passed. And, and that's when it started to really sink in this reality of like, there's, there's no such thing as like remission. And like, yes, like ideally this tumor is dying inside of my eye right now. Um, but for all I know, there could be remnants of this tumor cells just hanging out in my liver, just waiting to divide, which I hope never happens, right? But could happen whether that's two years down the line or 20 years down the line. Um, and so I think it's been a lot of back and forth. I think, um, you know, I have periods where I, you know, I'm not as focused on it, periods where it is more at the forefront of my mind. Like I went to two weddings this summer, two really good friends. And, you know, like those life events really make you think about your life and think about, am, am, is this ever going to be me? Am I ever going to have this experience to get married and build a life for myself? Um, and so, yeah, I think, um, you know, living with this cancer really forces you to live with that uncertainty of like, I don't know. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, I allow myself to go to that scary place sometimes because I think you have to when you have a cancer, when you have cancer, especially cancer like this, like going to that scary place of like, am I going to be here in two years? It's kind of funny. Like sometimes I think about like, am I ever going to pay off my student loans? Am I going to be alive to pay off my student loans? <laughs> Just a very funny thought. Student loan forgiveness. Yay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, like personally speaking, I think it's been a lot of back and forth and again, just leaning into whatever I'm feeling. Um, and I don't know if you want me to speak a little bit more on... Yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit more about like, okay, so you mentioned like, you know, that your mom was like, okay, like, aren't you so relieved? Like, I feel so relieved. So how do you, how do you approach, I guess, now talking with loved ones or how would you suggest to anyone else who's maybe talking with someone who, let's just, let's just say they're five years down the road. Maybe they're high risk, maybe they're low risk, but regardless, I don't think it really matters. I think most of us, regardless of risk factor, um, and especially like people, people who never had a chance to have a biopsy done, say 10 years ago, like, because biopsies just didn't exist at the level that they do today. Um, and the fact that they're here and they're, they're well, and they're doing fine now is a really good sign, but it's still not safe. Um, and so like to, I, I don't know, like, I, I think sometimes like I'm two years into this. And so sometimes I'll post and I'll just kind of get this moment of like feeling self-conscious of like, okay, like I'm posting about this again, how I had just, you know, I just had scans. It's been three months. I'm having scans again. This is why I'm having scans. And people are like, wait, I thought you were like free and clear, like what's going on. Um, so how, how do you approach or how would you suggest approaching when you are dealing with that uncertainty and the people around you are just like, they have, like you said, like this binary view of cancer that either you have it or you're in remission. And it's like, if you've got treatment and you've been successful, then like you're in remission. Right. And it's like, actually, it's not that simple. Mm -hmm. Um, like how, how do you, how do you approach that personally? And maybe how would you approach that, um, clinically as a, yeah. as a psychologist? I mean, I think to start what I have really tried to do is remind myself that before I was diagnosed with cancer, I thought it was that simple. I thought either you have cancer or you're in remission. I had no idea about the nuances, the complexity of cancer. Um, so, so when I noticed myself feeling frustrated with other people's responses, I first tried to remind myself, like, I've been there. Like, I've been in their shoes, and it makes sense they don't understand this fully. Um, so that's the first thing that I do. I think the second thing is really actually trying to explain to them um, what's <laughs> – special is a strange word to use, but like special about this cancer, that like there is this high risk of metastasis. And just because the tumor is hopefully dying or you get your eye nucleated, nucleated doesn't mean that risk goes away. 
Um, so I think like trying to explain the science to people, because I, I've noticed there are people in my life, like once I explain it to them in layman's terms, then they understand. Um, I think also sharing with people, when, when I'm talking about this like metastatic risk and this fear, you know, I, I try and explain that, you know, it, at least for myself personally, most of the time, not all the time, it's not something that I feel like is impairing my life. And, and so I want them to understand, like when I talk about these things, I'm not looking for them to say, you're going to be okay. Because A, that's not helpful to hear. And B, like, I don't actually need to hear that. Like I'm strong enough to deal with these emotions on my own with the support of other people. What I'm looking for is some validation. What I'm looking for is someone to just listen. Um, and so, you know, I think the more that I've tried to explain to people that, you know, I'm okay. Like I'm not okay and I'm okay if that makes sense. I think it's helped alleviate maybe that burden some people feel to to say to me like no, you're fine. Everything's going to be okay. Well, and I think um you make a good point that like that is kind of a go-to response. Like when 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 we see someone who is in what we feel or we perceive as as discomfort, right? If they're in some kind of an, an emotional discomfort. Um our instinct, I think as humans, especially I know like me, I'm just going to talk about like my kids for a second, like my toddler, if my toddler is mad. My instinct is I need to comfort her. I need to tell her like, it's going to be okay. She can stop crying. It's all like, it's all going to be okay. But like the total, the total honesty of it is that she learns emotional coping by being allowed to just experience what she's experiencing all the way through the end of the tunnel, the emotional tunnel of anger or, you know, I don't know, anxiety or whatever it is that she's feeling in her little two-year-old body. Like she needs the space to go from one end of the, of the tunnel to the other. And like you said, you know, as an adult, like just because you're feeling that and you're recognizing that you can go fully through that tunnel doesn't mean that you're not walking through the tunnel, you know, with strength. Like it, it doesn't mean, you know, just because you're feeling it doesn't mean you're crippled by it, I think is a good, a good way to think of it. Um, because, because that's, I mean, I, I share on social media like a lot and I share when I do share, I, I'm pretty, like, I'm pretty raw and I'm pretty vulnerable. And, and that's a good point to bring up is like, okay, like, yes, this is hard, but like, I need you guys to understand, or like, I want other people to understand, like, I'm not doing this to like, try to explain myself. I'm not sharing because I need, you know, I need them to tell me it's going to be okay. Because like you said, nobody can tell me it's going to be okay. Like nobody has that knowledge. Um, so it's completely unhelpful, right. For someone to say like, well, it's going to be fine. Like, it's like, no, that's completely invalidating what mm -hmm. I'm feeling because I am stuck in uncertainty. And you're telling me that somehow, you know, that it's certain and it's going to be okay. But like, so, but, um, I think that as humans though, our nature is to be uncomfortable in that discomfort. So if someone else is more comfortable in the uncomfortableness of uncertainty, like obviously you, me, many of us in this diagnosis, we become more at home, just kind of living with uncertainty. Um, it just becomes a part of daily life, right? We kind of carry it differently. Sometimes it's more triggering than others. Like you said, like life events, um, those kinds of things get me every time. Like my son just had a birthday and like every single time I like have a birthday of one of my kids, like the, the first thought that comes up that day is like, okay, like, am I going to be here for the 10th one or the sixth one or, you know, whatever happens in the future? Like, I have no idea. But like when I sit in that, what if like, yeah, the fear comes up and the anxiety comes up. Um, but for me to experience that and for someone else to be kind of on the witnessing end of that, I think can be uncomfortable, right? Even from social media or, you know, obviously in person, but, um, 
But I think that's a helpful little thing to be able to explain, like to just be able to say like, just because I'm feeling this doesn't mean I'm crippled by it. It doesn't mean that I'm unable to function. Um, yeah. yeah. I love that. I, I think like one of my biggest pet peeves is, I don't know, like I, I think it comes from a good place, but often we as humans will like fragilize other people, right? Like, oh my God, they're feeling sad. Oh my God, we, right, we need to get rid of that sadness. They're not going to be able to handle it, right? And it's not like happening on a conscious level, but it's like, no, like, like I'm, I'm adult. And I mean, even if I couldn't handle it on my own or, or couldn't handle it, that's okay too, but like I can, right? That's not to say I don't need support. That's not to say I don't have my sad, my sad days or my hard days, but like, don't treat this as if I'm like this like fragile thing that's going to break at any moment, right? Like, no, I think that's such a good point. And, and it really, I think it just, it just comes down to understanding, um, that, what did you say earlier? You said something about how, you know, before you got diagnosed with this cancer, you didn't understand the nuances mm -hmm. of it. And I think if, if we, if we get really just down to the nitty gritty of it, I think people who are not dealing with this kind of a cancer diagnosis or really any cancer diagnosis, their level of, um, ability to sit in that uncertainty with us like their, their skill level isn't going to be there. And so it's unfair to expect they're, they're going to be mm -hmm. able to hold space for us continuously in that way, which is where, you know, support groups come in, into play. Um, that's where the Zoom meeting that we have comes into play and where, you know, coming to the patient meeting, if people come to the patient meeting, um, where, you know, you get to meet other patients who are experiencing what you're going through or talking to other cancer patients who are maybe in the same age bracket as you. Um, finding those other kind of supports of people who do really get it can be so, so helpful in the, in the places where you have that absence, maybe in family or friends, like where maybe they just don't quite get it, or you're just not feeling like they're able to validate because they're, they're too stuck in, this makes me uncomfortable to see that you're, you know, fearful or anxious or whatever it is that you're feeling on this roller coaster of emotions. Um, I think just making sure that you have, you know, as a patient, that we have those places that we can turn to for support that is validating. Um, and in addition to, you know, learning the skills to validate ourselves and validate what we're feeling. Absolutely. Well, Allie, I feel like this has been such a good interview. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time and just like having a good, uh, a good chat and just telling us your story so fresh into this. Um, I think that takes, that takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength. Um, and I think it just shows, um, that you are like a living, a living proof of like radical acceptance, like that you are, you're working at it on, you know, on a daily basis. Like you're obviously, I know you, you understand this, like that it's, it's going to keep having its ups and downs for the rest of the next eight months until you get to your year mark. And then it's going to keep having more ups and downs. Mm -hmm. Um, for anyone listening, though, who does have a smaller tumor, I'm going to recommend that you go back and listen to Dr. Murray's episode. He does talk about smaller tumors, and he does talk about some of the new research that was released just this summer. Um, it was actually after your initial diagnosis and surgery. But um, some of the new research that has come out about laser and the, um, the types of laser that are more effective and... Um, kind of the benefits that he as an ocular oncologist sees as, you know, when is laser appropriate? When is it not? Um, so make sure to go back and listen to that. If you guys have a chance, it's a really helpful episode. And I felt like it was super helpful to hear some of the research that came out, um, at the, um, the ocular oncology summit that was in, it was across the country, across the world somewhere. I can't remember the name of it. Oh my goodness. Um, but Sweden. Yeah. In Sweden, I think, um, the, ISOO conference 
Yeah, that's what it was. Oh my goodness. My brain is just not working today. But there was some new data that was released about um, tumors that are treated, not just with laser, but tumors that are treated when they are smaller and how the benefit of that, even if you could have been in the high-risk category. Um, I think he touched on just briefly, like he said, there were they found class 2 patients who they were able to biopsy and they found they had a class 2 biopsy and they had, um, I want to say it was like a 90 plus percent survival rate despite having a class two biopsy because of, and this is the theory that they were presenting on ISOO, it was because of the tumor being treated while it was so small. Um, so I just want to offer that as a hopeful thing for you. Like I know in this uncertainty, like you obviously really wanted that biopsy. I guess maybe just take it, take it for what it is that you have a smaller tumor and that hopefully that means if the data is correct, which it's coming out that they think that it's correct, that the likelihood of you having to deal with anything major in the future is far smaller than it could be, even if you are considered high risk. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess just maybe take some, take some comfort in that, that maybe that maybe that's something in your favor and you can, you can be a unicorn in that realm right there. Um, but anyway, I really appreciate you just being with us. Um, I wanted to ask you if you have, um, I know this is kind of putting you on the spot, but if you have a favorite podcast or um, just a good book on like emotional resiliency or um, coping with your emotions that you would recommend to anyone to read or to listen to um, just to help kind of develop the skill set, right, of, of accepting like what's happening to you and not, um, not getting so caught up in the suffering of it, I think. Mm -hmm. That's such a good question. Um, see like everything that comes to mind are like manuals that I don't think the layperson would want to read through. Um, however, there is one book that actually does come to mind. It's called the happiness trap. I believe it's by Russ Harris. Um, but if you take the happiness trap online, there's two versions. There's one that's in like a comic form. Um, and then a longer one, a lot of great, like tangible skills, um, that you can use. It's based on acts, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, and that's been super helpful for me. Um, so I would definitely recommend. Oh, I love that. Okay. Um, I guess just to close out, what would you say is maybe the, if you were to, to just be able to, to talk to someone who is in your shoes, right? They're in their twenties, they've been diagnosed, they're, kind of at the prime of life trying to figure out like what's gonna what's life gonna look like moving forward maybe they haven't gotten married maybe they just got married um, maybe they just had their first kid like what what would you say to them if they are brand new to this diagnosis they're hearing your story and they're like wait someone who's in their 20s who gets this um, what would you say are some things that you've learned and that you would just encourage them to to hone in on mm -hmm. I would say first off like validate yourself like this is such a hard thing that you're going through and something you never imagined would happen so like that validation piece is so important get a therapist if you have the means to um do your research um if you feel like you're in a place to do that I think for me it gave me a sense of control that I otherwise wouldn't have had um reach out to me if you want to um would love to talk and I think I think just like allowing yourself to, to feel whatever's coming up and knowing that you're going to have those ups and downs. Um, and that makes so much sense. I, I also like, just as a quick side note, I remember like, um, maybe it was like three weeks after I got the surgery, I had like three weeks of feeling more down. And all of a sudden I was feeling like 10 out of 10 on top of the world. And I was like, wow, like, okay, like, I guess this is it. Like, I'm, I'm just going to feel great forever. And I was like, I know that's not true, right? And then, of course, however long later, I started struggling again with just, right, the idea of the unknown. Um, so just allowing yourself to, to feel whatever's happening for you. 
Oh, I think that's such a good point. Um, and thank you again, um, Allie, for just for everything that you shared. I feel like you shared some really good insights that I hope will be helpful to a lot of people. Um, so thank you again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.